We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of the Revelation, and the third chapter, Revelation chapter 3, and we shall read from verse 7, just to refresh our memories. Revelation 3, from verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it, for thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. And I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And may the Lord again bless to us this reading of his word. We return to consider the letter, the epistle that is sent to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, and uh, we do so for a specific reason. As we mentioned last Lord's Day, this is the only church among the seven that the glorified Redeemer actually speaks to as being given a particular work or opportunity to work to actually fulfill it and do it. You are aware that in some of the other churches, faults are found with them. There are errors, errors in practice, errors in doctrine, errors in teaching, and there are states and conditions referred to that require repentance. Here in the church in Philadelphia, no such requirements are stated, but the church is actually encouraged to proceed and to continue the witness that it has up until this point been endeavoring to maintain. 
And it is therefore this church that we would particularly, if we love the Lord, if we love his truth, if we love his word, if we desire to serve him honestly, well, this is the church that we would take as our example. This is a church we would surely desire to be most like, the church in Philadelphia. Now, having applied or endeavored to apply the truths that are mentioned uh, to some degree in our own case here, we would continue to consider one or two matters that I believe are of importance that we do understand them. I am only too well aware that there are scholarly individuals who would interpret certain things in connection with this church in a way that I do not believe has a biblical warrant or foundation whatever. And it is important that we do understand what Christ, the glorified head of the church, is actually saying and how he presents himself to this church. We noted how he addresses the church and introduces himself. These things saith he that is holy. Thus he is to be reverenced. He is holy. He is to be treated with reverence, and thus his word is to be treated with utmost reverence. He that is true, he that is absolutely 100% reliable and true, what he says is not to be questioned For a moment, what he says is not to be disputed. What he says is not to be argued with. What he says requires us to submit ourselves completely and entirely to it. He is holy, he is true, and he hath a particular key. He is in possession of a very important key, the key of David. He that openeth and he that shutteth. And when he shuts or opens, no one can oppose it or alter it, or inhibit it in any way. He opens, and no man can shut, and he shuts, and no man can open. We are, the churches, are to hear what the Spirit is now saying through him. Remember, he is not physically among us now. He is exalted to the Father's right hand. But the Spirit of God is sent 
to speak in his name and to speak on his behalf, to speak with his authority and to tell the church what his mind is, what he's saying. And this is what he's saying to the church in Philadelphia. As we emphasized it earlier, so we stress it again, there's no point in even considering the message until we have first of all seriously considered the description, the attributes of him who is addressing us. What does he say? I know thy works. I know. What I know I am telling you because I am truth. I know thy works. Behold. Behold. When we read that word in the scriptures, very particularly in the New Testament, the intention of the author is that we give very serious, very definite attention to something important. Behold. And it may be because there's a lack of attention, a lack of concentrated attention. Behold, I, before we go anywhere else, we have to go back. He that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, I, behold, I, not behold yourselves, Not actually behold what I've done, but behold me to begin with. I have set before thee an open door. Behold me active on behalf of my glory, my kingdom, my truth, Behold what I've done. I have opened a door. And no man can shut it. This is a message to the church in Philadelphia. Now we've already noted the weakness and we must remember this. There is such a contrast between the seven churches, their conditions, and so on. When we come to the church of the Laodiceans, they imagine themselves to be a very prosperous church, a very rich and wealthy church. But on the other hand, Philadelphia is a poor church. It is a weak church. In the sense that it is probably weak numerically, weak financially, weak materially, weak in a number of ways because of the very geographical uh, position it occupied in Asia. One of the, of course, God overrules in providence, one of the reasons why it is said the church survived so long in uh, Philadelphia is because of the constant earthquakes 
that took place throughout its history. It was renowned for earthquakes, and they were so terrible that even the Roman general refused permission to his army to enter to try and conquer Philadelphia. He conquered all around, but not Philadelphia, because they were afraid in their superstition of the earthquakes. And God, the God of providence, used even these things to protect his church, to keep his word, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, and so on. I have set before thee an open door. This is a church with a purpose. What do we read as we come to the end of the letter, the epistle, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I have set before thee an open door. This is a church, weak, poor, in many respects, but it is a church with a very definite purpose. Now, if we just stop for a moment, and as I said earlier, this is the church among the seven, surely, that we'd want to be most like. Wouldn't we want to be like the church in Philadelphia? Well, if we would desire to be like that church, then we need to ask, well, what is the purpose for our church? What is the purpose for our existence here? Why has God providentially opened a door here in Grafton? Why has he kept it open over all these years? And he has not allowed it to be shut. He has maintained it. He has kept it open. For what reason? What is the purpose for our existence here? Oh, you say, well, I suppose... Well, aren't we supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy? Aren't we supposed, according to Scripture, assemble together to worship God? And we are warned not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Aren't we supposed to meet and sing God's praise and uh, read the Bible and hopefully endeavor after an understanding of it? Isn't that what it's all about? No, my friend, that is not what it's all about. Here is a church, an assembly of people. They very obviously met to worship. They very obviously paid heed to the word of God, and the word came to them. This church, in its impoverished and weak state, 
still had one who could be described as the uh, minister, the angel of the church in Philadelphia. So we naturally assume they assembled like any other church. The doctrine was of the gospel was the same. The worship was basically the same. They acknowledged the God of Israel and the God of the covenant in the same way. And there were many similarities. But here's what God says through Christ to this particular church. Behold, I sovereignly, wisely, knowingly, I have set before thee. Not the church in Ephesus, not the church in Smyrna, not the church in Sardis, but before thee. Here in Philadelphia, I have set before thee an open door. Now, what does that immediately suggest? That Christ, the glorified head, has a very definite intention and a very real purpose for this particular church in Philadelphia. It has a very definite purpose. But it isn't a purpose that it is somehow or other managed to find amongst the learned individuals. They meet together. They have a discussion about how to manage the church, how to manage its finances, how to raise funds, and and so on. This is God's purpose. This is Christ's purpose. I did it. I opened the door. I opened the door of opportunity. I have set before you. You didn't open it yourselves. You didn't sit down and have a great discussion and decide the way forward and how you would manage the future. I set the way before you. I set the open door before you. I presented you with the opportunity. I did it. Now, do we know? Do we know here anything of a door being opened? Who opened it? Why did he open it? What's the purpose that Christ has for us here in this congregation? Is it just to be different from everyone else? People pride themselves. We all know. People pride. Churches pride themselves. Ministers pride themselves in being different. We're not as them. We don't do what they do. We do what they don't do. And we decide 
what our purpose will be, what we will be, what we will do, what we will claim, what we will manage. I have set before thee an open door. And it is the duty, therefore, of the church here in Philadelphia to behold, to see the door that is open, to see the opportunities that that open door presents to them. They are their opportunities. It is their open door. So is there a door that is open divinely in providence, wisely by Christ for us as a people? Or is this irrelevant? Does it not matter? We need to understand that because this church has a divinely intended purpose, it has solemn responsibilities. If the door is opened and no one bothers to enter it, no one bothers to pay attention, to behold it, to consider it, what is it leading to, What is the purpose of it? What sense does it make? This is a door that not only provides opportunity when it's opened, but very solemn responsibilities. What are our responsibilities as a congregation? Philadelphia. Is Philadelphia Ephesus? Is Philadelphia Sardis? Of course not, it's Philadelphia. And I have opened the door in Philadelphia. Whatever door I may have opened in Ephesus or Sardis or Samaria or whatever, this is the door that I have opened here in Philadelphia. Now, who has opened it? The one who knows the end from the beginning, the one who is holy, the one who is true, the one that hath the key of David. And with that key, he has opened this door. Now, I mentioned it in passing, and I think we need to ask, well, what saith the Scriptures? How does the Scripture interpret what John records here? I have opened a door. I have set before you an open door. You didn't open it yourselves. You have no key to open it. I opened it. I, one of the things that I believe confuses men and, they, and therefore confuses ordinary people is the idea that 
What is referred to is the same or similar to what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew 16. You remember how Jesus inquires of his disciples, well, who do men say that I am? Who do they think I am? And then Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus said, Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Verse 18 then. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys in the plural, as I've said in the past. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, there is the general acceptance that this is a reference to government and discipline in the church of Christ. That those who hold office in the church hold the keys. And they are required to open the door or shut the door, open it to those who uh, manifest grace, who demonstrate, uh, at least outwardly, that they have the grace of God, that they have been united with Christ and thus with the body of the church. And they are responsible to use the keys to shut the door against that which is false and that which is erroneous, that which is not true. And there is this idea that when here we have the message to the church in Philadelphia, I hath, uh, the one who's speaking has the key of David. That's a different key altogether. It is not the keys of the kingdom that were given to the apostles and thus to their successors, elders, and bishops in the church. Now you may say, well, why do you say that? Because scripture says it. What is the significance of the key to begin with? If you go back with me to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 22, you will see there a reference, a historic reference to this very key that is mentioned here, the key of the house of David. In uh, Isaiah 22, we read of a transferring of power and authority and position between two persons. In verse 20, we may read, 
Isaiah 22 from verse 20, And it shall come to pass in that day that I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with thy robe and strengthen him with thy girdle, and I will commit my government into his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. Now the significance of that, of course, is you, you got to go back to olden times. And very often if you were in a city, you would be going through the streets and you would find some very important individual robed in attire that certainly spoke of his office and his authority. And he would have hanging on his shoulder a large key. Sometimes he might even have some kind of an embroidered key wrought into the shoulder or the arm of his tunic, because it was a very important office to be the king's key bearer and so on. And this is what we have before us here. The transferring of power and authority and position uh, between these two men, it is handed over to Eliakim, It had been previously the position of Shebna. Now it is being transferred over to uh, Eliakim. Verse 22 again, the key of the house of David. Well, I lay upon his shoulder, so he shall open, and none shall shut, and he shall shut, and none shall open. That's the extent of his authority. Now, it isn't his own authority. It is executive authority. He executes his office on behalf of the king and for the security of the king's house and the king's palace and so on. Now, if you go over to chapter 36... You'll see there a particular occasion when the children of Judah are uh, under uh, attack and where they're threatened. And so the individuals who represent the king and the nation go out to meet the uh, king uh, uh, Sennacherib. And what we're told is... In verse 3, then came, for, came forth unto him Eliakim, Helkiah's son, which was over the house, and Shebna the scribe. Shebna had previously carried the key, but his office was reduced to scribe, and it was... Uh, Elkiah, who was then put into that position 
carrying and authorized to make use of the key of the house of David. Now we read from Hebrews chapter 3 for a reason. Because there we see Christ referred to in chapter 3 of Hebrews as one who is not only the builder of the house, but the one who is actually over the house itself. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him. He was faithful in the office to which he was appointed. What was he appointed to? What office? He was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Now what are we seeing? A spiritual house with a spiritual office, and that spiritual office is authority over the house. That office exercises supreme authority over the house. In other words, implied here is Christ, the key bearer, who owns or possesses the key to open and shut the door of the house over which (coughs) he himself is the, the ruler. He hath built the house to begin with. Now then, is there reference to him actually opening and shutting? In the uh, epistle again, of or rather the prophecy of Isaiah, if we go back to it, you will see references there. For example, in chapter 61 of Isaiah, And this again is referred to during the ministry of the Savior himself, as quoted by the Savior, Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me 
to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Notice what he is sent to do. You go to Luke chapter 4, you see the Savior actually reading from this portion with application to himself. This is what I've been sent to do. I've been sent to open doors. I've been sent to open the prison door. I've been sent to release the prisoners, to open and no man will shut. Go back with me to chapter 42 of the same prophecy and you will see there how the uh, Savior is referred to prophetically. Verse 5 of Isaiah 42, Thus saith the Lord God that created the heavens and stretched them out and he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it, and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. For a light of the Gentiles. To open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I am the Lord. What is my purpose? To open and to do it not in a material manner opening a material door, not through a physical action, but to open blinded eyes, to open the understanding, to go to the Gentiles with the key of David and open the kingdom to them. Now, we will look at some of the ways in which that key is used to open the door for the church and for its witness. But presently, we may uh, consider what the actual key is. How does the key open the door of the prison? How does the key Open the blinded eyes so that those who sat in darkness are now in light and those who were in bondage and captivity are now free and released. How does the key bearer do just this? If you go with me to the gospel according to Matthew, you have the Savior speaking very, very strong words to a particular party who had great influence on the 
population and society at the time when the Savior was in this earth, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 13. Listen to the language. Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's mighty strong language. Woe unto you. There is a condemnation pronounced. The divine woe of God himself. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Here were men abusing power to control what Christ refers to as the kingdom of heaven. What were they guilty of? Why are they referred to in such strong terms? Because they were shutting up the kingdom. They had taken it upon themselves, self-appointed key bearers, self-appointed to control the kingdom, self-appointed to shut out, and yet they were not going in themselves, the Savior said. Now, we need to look at what we Uh, Read in Luke chapter 11 because it is uh, Luke's uh, version of basically the same expression that the Savior uh, used as recorded in Matthew. Luke chapter 11, verse 52. Again, the woe is pronounced. Woe unto you lawyers. For ye have taken away the key. What key? Ye have taken away the key of knowledge. The key of knowledge. Ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves... And them that were entering in, ye hindered. Ye have taken away the key of knowledge. The key of knowledge, as you well know, opens up the understanding, opens up a man's understanding of the world in which he lives, his understanding of himself, his understanding of others, how important the key of knowledge is. Now this very obviously is the key that the Savior himself 
used. What did he do whenever he was baptized? He began to preach and he began to teach. And it was so vitally important that he would use the key of David, the key of knowledge, the spiritual key of the spiritual kingdom to open the eyes. What other way would he possibly open the eyes and bring men out of prison, the Gentiles? who were imprisoned in their heathen darkness. The Gentiles who are slaves to their immoral practices because they don't know any better. They are imprisoned in their ignorance. But he has been sent to open the prison to bring them out, to open the eyes of their understanding And bring them out of the prison house in which they are with what? The key of knowledge. And who other could possibly be authorized or warranted to carry on his shoulder that key better than he in whom it is written, of whom it is written, in him are hid all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. He is the Alpha and the Omega. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the great key bearer. It's on his shoulder that the key is carried. It is his office to open and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. And here he is saying to the church in Philadelphia, in Asia, not in the kingdom of Judah or Israel, but among the Gentiles, I have set before you an open door. You've been brought out of the prison house of your ignorance. You've had your eyes of your understanding opened to know As Jesus said in John 17, the true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Now the Savior, you all know that the common people, we are told, heard him gladly. Now why did they hear him gladly? Because of the contrast between his teaching and the supposed instruction that came from the scribes and the Pharisees, hypocrites. You have taken away the key of knowledge. You have left this people in ignorance. You have left them in blindness and darkness. You have actually brought guilt upon yourselves because you've taken the key away. You are forbidding them knowledge. You are prohibiting them from having light, 
from having knowledge of the truth, I tell you there must be a mighty severe woe pronounced on many so-called churches today. There will be people and they will attend churches as they call them and they will be as ignorant at the end of the day as though they were in some pagan heathen community in Africa or South America. They will have no more knowledge of God or of heaven or hell or sin or redemption than the dog in the field. The key taken away, that's mighty solemn, because he is the one who has the key of knowledge and desires that men would have light, that they would have understanding, that they would have knowledge. Now, why did the common people listen to the Savior? Because he spake not as the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, they were still speaking. But he didn't speak like them. There was a distinct difference. And the common people heard the Savior because he spake not as the scribes and the Pharisees. They could make, they could distinguish a difference. I'll tell you something. If man can't distinguish the difference between the ministry here and in some other places in this community, well then God help us. It ought to be seen to be different. And the Savior was listened to because he spoke with authority. And yet he spoke so simply. But he spoke with authority. Why? Because he had the key. He had the office. He had the key of knowledge opening the door of the true house of David, the spiritual house of David. And you see again and again what the Savior did. So important was it to him to use that key of knowledge. He set aside all uh, traditions, as it were, and all conventions, because the people needed the key of knowledge. Look at what he did. He didn't just go and preach in the synagogues. He went and he taught in the temple. He taught in our streets. Even those who, he says, I never knew you to But you taught in our streets. He also went and he got into a boat and he went out. And he made a boat as pulpit. And he preached to the people on the shore. Oh, the Pharisees didn't do that. They stuck to the synagogue. They stuck to ritual. They stuck to uh, the customs. Some people think I'm a traditionalist, that I like tradition 
And I certainly do, provided it's biblical. Someone said, tradition is the living faith of dead men. And traditionalism is the dead faith of living men. What a difference. Traditionalism is nothing short of the dead faith of living men. Jesus carried the key. Why did he carry it? To open the door of the kingdom, the door of mercy, the door of hope, the door for the perishing, to bring them out of prison, out of ignorance. Now, what other door do you imagine is referred to here that he would open when we come to the epistle to the church in Philadelphia? I have set before you an open door. I have used my office, I have used my authority, I have come to open the door of the prison house, I have come to open the eyes of the blind, I have opened your eyes, now behold, I brought you out of prison, now behold your liberty. I have opened your eyes. Now behold the knowledge you possess. But then you see the Savior is saying here to the church in Philadelphia, I have set before you. I've opened it for you. You now have what you previously didn't have. What are you going to now do with the opportunity? What now do you understand of the divine purpose in setting before you this open door? The door of knowledge. Now you know well the commission that the Savior gave to his apostles in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, when he sent them out into all the world to preach the gospel and so on. What did he tell them to do? Matthew chapter 28, and there we read verse 19. Jesus very clearly states what they are to do. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. The key that you are to carry with you is the key that those have neglected and taken away from the people the key of knowledge. Teach them, teach all nations the key of knowledge baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things 
whatsoever I have commanded you. If you're fulfilling your duty, they'll be learning. If you are doing what you should be doing, their knowledge, their understanding of truth will be greatly multiplying and increasing. You are to teach them. I've given you the key of knowledge. You know me. What did Peter answer? Thou art the Christ. Thou art, John learns, the Alpha and the Omega. Thou art the searcher of the heart. Thou art the truth. Thou is the key of David. This is the purpose for which the apostles were sent into a heathen world to open blinded eyes. To under God bring men out of ignorance. To bring them out of their bondage out of the prison house of ignorance. Why is the door open here for us? Do we have a purpose in this community? Is there a reason, a divine reason for our existence? Do we believe that people around us are spiritually ignorant? Do we believe their ignorance is going to bring them to a lost eternity? I was reading statements made by one of the leading atheists. And one of the condemnations he made of the professing church was this. You believe as Christians... In God, you believe in heaven and hell. I don't. If I believed as you do, I would do everything in my power to seek to save your soul. And this atheist condemn the church as being nothing short of guilt, being guilty of what he called religious atheism. Religious atheism. Claiming to believe and not actually believing at all. Here is the church in Philadelphia. I have opened a door for you in Philadelphia. Because I've opened the door, I have given you a purpose to live for. I have given you a purpose to fulfill. I have intentions for you in Philadelphia. I have opened a door for witness. And your purpose in Philadelphia is to witness for the truth and to witness against error to use the key of knowledge to bring poor sinners out of the prison house, to bring the ignorant out of darkness, 
Do we imagine that's what really we're supposed to be doing? If one speaking here says, He that is true, I have opened the door for a very genuine reason. I've set before you in Philadelphia an open door for a very definite reason, a genuine reason. I'm true. I've opened it. I didn't open it just as a joke. I didn't open it just to find something to do. I opened it for a genuine reason. That you might use the opportunity that that door presents to meet the needs of those perishing in ignorance and in blindness and in darkness. That door, as every door does, separates. And everyone is on one side or the other of the door. And I have opened for you the door, set before you an open door. Who's on the other side of that door? The lost, the perishing, those who are on their way to a lost eternity. What are you going to do about it in Philadelphia? What are we doing here about the lost that we meet every day in the street? come and go and passes on our way to eternity and we pass them on their way to eternity. Is it that we've no opportunity? Are we going to hold up our hands and say, ah, but Lord, we've no opportunity. There's no open door for us. There's no one lost around us. Nobody's perishing around us. The awful darkness of a lost eternity need not trouble anyone. It's We have no opportunity to speak to one lost sinner. I have set before thee an open door and those on the other side of that door are depending on you, humanly speaking. We shall have to look further. And I don't see that there is any fault in looking more deeply at this church because of the fact it is the one church that Christ commends and its work is commended. You've held to my word, therefore I will use you. Because in that word that you've held to is the key of knowledge. And because you've held the key of knowledge, I've opened the door for you. May God help us as a congregation to be useful to those who are perishing around us. But we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray.
O most holy one, have mercy upon us. We are so blind and so ignorant even to the opportunities that in providence are set before us. Do thou bless us as a people, strengthen us for duty. Help us, we pray, in thy mercy to seize every opportunity to bring the key of knowledge to those who are in ignorance and lost in darkness. Bless thy truth and apply it to us. Pardon all our sins for Christ's sake. Amen.